0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Before we get to uh, this fun conversation I have with Dr. Chris Green, which I'm going to be real honest, I really like talking to Sky. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. But it's a good one. Honestly, it might be the best podcast I've ever put out uh, today. And you're going to like it. Uh, let me tell you about something else you're going to like. Our friends at The Work of the People have been doing some outstanding work, Showing some great videos that I've used in uh, sermons myself. I've got a good buddy of mine from Memphis named Joshua who just showed a video about baptism that they had. Uh, I think it was on Sunday at his church, and he said it went great. So um, big fans of The Work of the People. They actually have the new video series that they've put out from, uh, it's kind of a spin-off of Rachel Held Evans Searching for Sunday, a book that we talked about just a couple weeks ago with Rachel, and uh, it's a curriculum that's designed uh, for small groups. I think there's uh, seven films, and you get a discussion guide with it, so I, I would encourage you to head on over to theworkofthepeople.com, and there's going to be a link to that in the description on the website. I believe some people refer to that as show notes, so if you want to learn more about The Work of the People, check it out, and without further ado, Chris Green. Welcome back to the show, friends. Today we have joining us from Cleveland, Tennessee, Dr. Chris Green.
1: Welcome to the show, Chris. It's good to be here. Really good to be here. Excited about it.
0: Well, thank you for making the time. Now, this is a big podcast. You know, the the listeners reached out and said, we need to have Chris Green on the podcast. So we've got to give the people what they want. And so that's why you're here.
1: Very cool. You Very must cool. Face- I'm glad for both of them doing that. Yeah.
0: Well, no, it was uh, it was a gentleman named uh, Joseph Phillips. So Joseph, your dreams are coming true. Chris Green's on the podcast.
1: Chris Thanks, Green. Joseph,
0: you're all about making dreams come true, aren't you?
1: I am. That is that is the call I received from the Lord. Right. <laughs> Outstanding. That's why my wife married me, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. I'm sure she's nodding her head in affirmation right behind you. <laughs> That's awesome. now. If people don't know, uh, you are a professor at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary. Yes. Which, for those who don't know, that's the official seminary of the Church of God. Is that right?
1: Right, exactly. It's the it's a Church of God ministry. Not only Church of God faculty and students. I'm not Church of God. And what a are, lot they, what of students, are you? Well, if they'll claim me, I'm. I was raised Pentecostal Holiness, which that, is a kind of. It's related, of course. It's a classical Pentecostal denomination, and I've been in and out of virtually every holy place in the Pentecostal tradition. So I lived and worked in Tulsa for a while, which oh, is yeah. it is to the charismatic movement, what Rome is to Catholicism. And now here I, I was in Oklahoma City, which is the headquarters for the Pentecostal Holiness Church. And now I'm in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is the headquarters for the Church of God. So I'm you know, I'm trying to make sure that I'm legit son of Pentecostalism by yeah. living all these sacred places.
0: Well, uh, that sounds very legit to me. <laughs> then again, I don't really know the difference between Church of God, Assembly of God, Pentecost. They all sound the same to me. So yeah. we're, I, I'm happy for you. Now, you have been called the smartest person, the smartest Pentecostal there is, you've got two doctors, you've got ad men, D-man, you've got a Ph.D. Now, I've got some cantankerous listeners who would say terrible things, and, and I'm just going to nip them in the butt. And I know some of them are thinking, the smartest Pentecostal, that's like saying you're the like best guitar player in the Church of Christ.
1: <laughs> but we it don't... actually may be something like that. <laughs> but,
0: but, you know, I don't agree, and I just think that's terrible for my listeners to say such a thing. But you do have two doctorates. You did a okay. yeah, and then went back and did a Ph.D.
1: Mm-hmm. I always wanted to do the PhD. I did the d Men. It's actually a very Pentecostal story. If you want to hear it, you can always edit this out, right? For Those <laughs> listeners who are going to be frightened by it. So I, I had planted a church. My wife and I had planted a church. And I'd always... Where was this? Uh, in Oklahoma City. Okay. In Oklahoma City. And I had aspired to do a PhD and to teach. But at, when I planted the church, I was working, some of the time, full-time teaching, some of the time just as adjunct here and there. And of course i could only teach undergraduate courses here and there because i didn't have terminal degree and so I, it was mostly a dream i didn't know when would come when it would come to pass and i got a call one day from this this man i'd had one class with him when i was like this was 1994 i had a class with him and it was not a good class i hope he never hears this podcast <laughs> it was it was really rough <laughs> the truth is he would come in he had videotaped himself giving these lectures in the 70s and 80s oh no I didn't even know they had video cameras when yeah. this class had taught the first time. So he would come into our class, it was a night class, and play the video. Oh no. So it was a rough class. I mean it was pretty and I hadn't seen him since then. He calls me out of the blue and says, Hey, I want to have lunch with you. I go to lunch with him. And he says that he was praying for me and God had told him I should go to O R U or Roberts and do this D And, you know, I was to put it very nicely. Very skeptical of all of that. And I came home, I told my wife, and I was laughing about it. She's like, well, we should go up there and see if you like it. I was like, ah, I'm going to do a PhD. I'm not interested in a D-man. Long story short, I ended up going to Tulsa. And while we were there, we met with some of the, the faculty. And they agreed to let me to do it. I had There were kind of special conditions since I was pastoring. Mm-hmm. And they agreed to let me try it. And the way that spun out is I did the D-man and... Then immediately was hired to teach at ORU, and then told if I would start a PhD program, they would hire me for a tenure track position. Wow! So it was kind of they must have liked putting you. this in my life, right? Right? Exactly. <laughs> wow. Maybe Joseph. Maybe Joseph Phillips was, yeah, the he, one was a, pulling the strings. Yeah, he's actually at the ORU
0: ab, uh, chairman of the board. That's <laughs> right, what happened. Exactly.
1: But the thing is, I, so I started the PhD program, and I went through all the interview process, had a contract, and everything. And it fell through. That was right during the change that happened with Richard Roberts stepping away in scandal and all of that craziness. So anyway, it didn't work out at ORU. But after I finished the Ph.D., I came here to Cleveland. So that's the that's the Pentecostal story. there.
0: That sounds very Pentecostal. Now, the difference. My story is I finished my MDiv, and all the guys and gals who got an MDiv with me were like immediately recruited to start the men at my alma mater. And mm-hmm. I haven't gotten one call or one email. <laughs> no one's reached out to me. Hey Luke, come they don't even no, they're not even putting me on a mailing list. Which like, uh, just,
1: they just assume you're too busy.
0: We're we're glad you're out of here and we're glad that we give you a degree so you have to come <laughs> back. But uh yeah, that's um I'm at least they like you. That's what I'm saying. They obviously like you more than my alma mater likes me.
1: See I think it depends on which alma mater you're talking about. There are other stories we could tell. <laughs> I don't have the same track record everywhere. Okay, well that, I have good friends at ORU and let's let's leave it at that.
0: Well that makes me feel a little a little bit better. Absolutely. Okay, no, so uh I get uh, a message from you on Twitter on um Saturday. I'm flying back from the airport, I check my phone. Hey, uh, you said you're on a road trip, you're listening to some podcasts. Yeah. I'm assuming yeah. since you're Pentecostal, you had to start with Brian's
1: on, right? Actually that was the first one I heard, because- How did I know? someone told me that Brian said something about me on there. And so I thought, okay, I wonder what that could be. And they were like, it's a great podcast. You should listen to it. So I heard Brian's. And then, I mean, I'm driving. It's, it's about five hours from my house to Charlotte. And I had to drive there and back, of course. And so I just started burning them out one by one. I got the, I started, was on. And then I jumped back, I think, Ronald Rose, Rollheiser, was oh that right! I didn't know, know, know anything about this this man until really? I really. What and made I, you pick that know, one? I have no idea because I didn't recognize the name. Ronald
0: Rolheiser. Yeah, I talked to him a long that time was, ago.
1: That was really terrific. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in reading more about him and yeah, and and so I, and then I listened to you know four or five or six more.
0: Yeah. Now I think I gave you a shout out in the NT Wright podcast because yes, you had. You had right. tweeted something about someone's like decal in the back of their car.
1: That, uh, was such a, that was such a wonderful moment. So we we're a little bit late to that event. Because uh, you're in Tennessee. Park. You were at yeah. the
0: thing before I got to see him, right? Um, yeah.
1: Right, exactly. I was at that event, and we drive up to it. To Sewanee, Su- right? Sewanee, yeah. 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 And when I, we can't find a parking place, and finally I do. I find a, a place to park, and when I get out of the car, the car directly in front of me has that decal on the back window. And I thought how this nothing more fitting has ever happened in the history of the world than this car at an NT ride event. Yeah, it was spectacular. And then, yeah, someone told me that you had maybe you tweeted at me. Somebody told me that you had mentioned it to him. How did he respond? I, I didn't hear that one.
0: Uh, I mean, I don't remember. I was just a ball of nervousness and sweat when I was talking <laughs> to him. So I don't Fair remember enough. exactly Fair what enough. he said. I, actually, we get there and we go check in. Swanee's like this very nice university, great facilities for at least the place where I was. And my sidekick who was with me, little Johnny, said, hey, the guy right in front of us is that the Bonhoeffer biographer guy, Eric. Med- yeah, Metaxas. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, I, I, I don't <laughs> care. I'm just, I'm just right. so nervous. i am just got to get to the room with uh, Dr. Tom, and mm-hmm. um, that's what happened.
1: Oh, I, I didn't did realize it. you did that live. With yeah, me. yeah. Either we f- oh, we really flew
0: cool. out, flew into Nashville and drove down to Suwanee which is just a beautiful place. It was snowing it is, when we absolutely. got there, and going up the mountain, I felt like this was majestic. The the yeah, heavens absolutely. were open for me to talk to the bishop. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, I've I've never been there before, but it's uh, but it's real nice. And um, so yeah, I'm glad you checked out some of those podcasts. Obviously, the the Brian Simon. I think we, I think I brought you up because I was talking about my growing love and I appre- I don't want to say love, growing appreciation <laughs> for you Pentecostals. Cause, okay. You know, I grew up in a tradition, Churches of Christ, where you know, we know the Pentecostals are over there, but we don't like, Mm -hmm. we don't get together too often. Fair enough. But I've got this, uh, this guy from my church, who's actually, uh, he's going to, uh, your seminary, a guy named Tim Boykins. Yeah. I know Tim. And so Tim is in this, uh, I've got a group of him and uh, another guy and the three of us uh, work on sermons together and they help with ideas and thoughts and all that stuff. And so I'm always kind of hearing like his Pentecostal take on stuff and you get quoted often. And, uh, it's a whole like, different world that I'm surprised that I have so much commonality with, especially like the high view of the sacraments, appreciation of Tom, yeah. right? Um, and, and I just never knew that like, that's, that was part of your tribe, and I think your first book is on a Pentecostal theology of communion.
1: Yeah, that's right. It, that's right. Is your
0: appreciation for the table consistent with a lot of people in the Pentecostal faith or tradition?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think, and I don't know how this is with the Churches of Christ. I mean, I'm sure you know more about my tradition than I know about yours, but I, I think...
0: Well, we're the ones going to heaven. That's the only thing you need <laughs> Which is
1: all, the, all that anyone really needs <laughs> to know, right? Well, I, th- I think you've got Pentecostalisms, right? And you've got, there's so much diversity within Pentecostalism that it's really hard to talk about our tradition in any kind of one way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's not... So yes, I think there are lots of Pentecostals who would resonate with what I'm saying, and lots who would find what I'm saying heretical and damaging. So you know, it's it's really I would I'm in no way speaking for the tradition. Robert Jensen, who's a theologian I love, I heard him once. Someone asked him about being Lutheran, and he said, "Well, I'm Lutheran. I'm just an unreliable Lutheran. Don't look to me to find out what Lutheranism <laughs> is." Yeah, that's <laughs> and that's, that's 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 basically my tagline for my Pentecostalism. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm Pentecostal. That's all. I, I mean, I, only churches I've attended really and. Worked in all the schools i 've gone to have been pentecostal charismatic in some way, but it 's pretty unreliable if if you 're looking to what i 'm saying to see what pentecostals believe that 's probably yeah. probably misleading
0: that 's kind of similar to my tradition is that you 've got you know some people in the churches of Christ to look. Like a you know your average Bible church non denominational you know, Southern Baptist church you walk in and it kind of looks like that and then you have some that are very anti and some that are very sectarian some that are you know lean left and some lean right it's just a it, it's a wide swath of people and it's weird because your your tradition is what hundred years old or so is that yeah. right yeah, so yeah a little over a hundred years old. Azusa yeah. Street is that where it starts well Ish. see that's, that's okay not. okay we don't have to go in that <laughs> it's about, but my traditions is just a little bit older than that but yet you find yeah, all these yeah, different yeah, right. strands within it yeah. now. I've, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's kind of a, the, the issue or one of the issues for, for Pentecostals is the whole thing about jewelry. Mm, Like there's like this, this big thing about that, which the way I'm hearing it, it sounds a whole lot like the way us Church of Christ people deal with instrumental music. Yeah. Like we kind of have like, oh, wait a minute. There's like some beautiful things about it, like. A cappella singing, it's like it's it's simple, it's just your voice in God. But then there's like some really damaging stuff where you're like, if you don't do this, it's a sin. Oh, and absolutely. the same thing with the is that is that a fair comparison you think?
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's more of it's the past for most Pentecostals. It's not the present. For most mm. of them. I mean you still can find plenty of Pentecostals who who would hold to that. But it's usually associated with holiness teaching. So most of these Pentecostals that I've grown up with they're Pentecostal and holiness, meaning their theology, it's Pentecostal in that they believe in baptism of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, the miraculous, all of that. But they also are holiness in that they're very much concerned about what women wear, makeup, jewelry. Just women, not men? <laughs> well, mostly. Like, I always make the joke with my students that the rules were women couldn't do this, this, or that, and men couldn't let their women do that. <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little bit unfair. I mean, there, it was... But it definitely the rules were harder for women than for men. And and there is there's a kind of absurdity about it all because a lot of Pentecostal churches are they're open to women ministry. Really? And so in that way they're very egalitarian, but in other ways it's very misogynistic and chauvinistic. Um, so it's you know it's it's a bit it's a bit nonsensical.
0: Hmm. Interesting. In
1: but for most Pentecostals that I know now, that's the past, that's not the present. I mean, you wouldn't see that in most of the churches that I preach in. Well, none of the churches that I preach, and m- most of my students don't come from churches like that, and so it's more twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years ago that was kind of the heart of the movement here mm-hmm. in the Bible Belt. But that's that's more marginal now. Yeah, huh. which some people see as you know horribly damaging. I think is for the most part a good thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I would say in the same way that it's compared to a singing for Churches of Christ, I think there's a lot of Church of Christ people who realize it's not a sin issue, but it's just this is our tradition, and it's beautiful, and we like that. And that's a healthy thing, but to, to say, like, if you don't do it this way, you're going to burn in hell. That, at any time, you're just, like, assigning hell for an entire group of people who <laughs> thinks differently, probably right. not a good thing to do. Right, so just right. as a general rule of thumb. So one of the things I'm interested in is the way you read Scripture, and I've had this conversation with your your buddy Tim and my buddy Tim about uh, interpretation. And I don't know if you're familiar with any of Pete N's work. I am a little, yeah. Okay. And so we had this conversation about um, you know Pete's been on the podcast a couple of times and and uh, you know I think one of his lines, and I hate to put words in his mouth, especially since he's going to like tweet me and say I'm so dumb and wrong because I didn't go to Harvard. But uh, I, I think you know Pete would make the argument that Paul plays. Uh, a little fast and loose with the Old Testament, and he does midrash, which was a right. common custom of the time. And as I'm talking to Tim about this, it seems like the argument you're making. I know you've got a, a book about interpretation, sanctifying mm-hmm. interpretation, at the title, yeah. yeah. in which you're making the argument that salvation is when we read Scripture like Jesus read Scripture. Is that a fair? Fair quote?
1: Yeah, I think so. Close yeah. enough. Yeah, I mean, it's that the way God saves us is bound up with how we read Scripture. Not only how we read scripture, but that how we read is inseparable from the work of salvation in our lives. And I'm wanting, what I'm wanting to do in that book is put a lot of weight on how we read, like okay. the actual process of reading okay. and how that connects to salvation. So, yeah.
0: Well, so I had this conversation with Pete and I said, you know, uh, you know Paul kind of plays fast and loose with the Old Testament and it's midrash. And, you know, if, if I did that in a church or in an exegesis class with the New Testament, yeah. like it would be counted wrong. And, mm-hmm. and, and Pete made the joke, he's like, uh, we, like, we all do that every day. Like, wh- if you get up on a Sunday morning and you hear someone preaching, they're probably do, p- playing a little fast and loose with Scripture sure. too. Yeah. But you're okay with that because… Well,
1: you, I, I th- think some of, the, some of it is it assumes what the standard is, right? So when you're talking about fast and loose, that's over against a certain hermeneutical standard. And part of what I would want to question is whether or not that hermesta- hermeneutical standard should be the standard or not. Okay. And, and maybe what Paul is doing is actually—I mean, I remember as an—I mean, I went to a Pentecostal Bible school for undergrad, but this certain grammatical, contextual hermeneutic, the evangelical hermeneutic, held sway there too. And so we were told, you know, read in context, read in the original languages, and then translate. I mean, all the things that that go with that that hermeneutic and. I remember as an undergraduate student having conversations in those classes with my professors about how that's not what the New Testament writers are doing. Yeah. And we were told explicitly that we weren't supposed to read like they did. That that was part of their revelation. That they were allowed to handle the text that way because they were they stood in a special place in, in the history of revelation. Mm-hmm. And now we don't. We stand in a different place and therefore we have to read differently. And I I just... I don't believe that I mean, I think that we yes, we stand in a different place in the history of revelation, but the way the text has to be read is actually quite like the way Paul read the Old Testament and the way the Old Testament reads itself i mean i I think we we do we would do well to imitate the way scripture reads scripture, and that's that's really at the heart of what I'm calling for i think
0: and, and if I'm understanding your work correctly, it seems like you 're very christocentric, like everything is read through the person of jesus mm-hmm. it, it's, yeah. that's kind yeah. of like a Christian thing to do i think so right. i'm, I'm right. completely behind that, and so is that how you 're encouraging people to to read scriptures that it all goes through the filter of of jesus
1: yeah i mean you you have that right which is which is similar to a lot that Brian Zahn has done. The difference I think between what Brian is doing and what i 'm doing is i don't what i don 't want to do and that may shed more light than me saying what I am trying to do, is I don't want to privilege the Gospels over against the rest of Scripture, and I don't want to privilege the New Testament over against the Old Testament. What I want to argue is that the whole of Scripture is a witness to Jesus, and that our readings need to hear that witness rightly. In fact, part of what I argue in the last part of that book that you're talking about is that... Jesus and the Apostles had only our Old Testament, and they recognized the witness of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And if we're reading rightly, that's all we need, to. Now, what we have in the New Testament is the model for how to read the Old Testament.
0: Okay.
1: So, And here I'm depending a lot on Robert Jensen again. I mean, Robert Jensen says that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are Scripture, but they're Scripture in different ways. And that the Old Testament is actually the revelation, and the New Testament is the revelation of how to hear the revelation. It's how to read it, how to make sense of it. So I'm doing something very similar to that, not that exactly, but close. And that's, I think that's a little bit different from what Brian's doing, and a, you know a little bit of um, so it's more and, and from Greg Boyd too, who, who does yeah. something similar. So I am crystalcentric like them, but I'm saying something a little bit different about how crystalcentric readings work, I think.
0: That's interesting because I typically would say the gospels come first. Yeah, and that's the centerpiece. But you're saying no, 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 gospels and the epistles and the rest of the New Testament—it's all even.
1: Yes, that, yes, I think so. And here's—that's that, at least the case I'm trying to make, right? Mm-hmm. That this all of Scripture is equally authoritative and sufficient in witness to Jesus. So what I—what I—I mean, we don't want to in any way downplay the gospels. I'm certainly not trying to do that. I, I think I'm, I'm more trying to make a case that. Christocentric readings don't have to be gospel-centric readings.
0: Really? Huh.
1: And I I think that's um, yeah, that's a conversation I at least I want to have.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Now, part of what I'm reacting to is, from my tradition, it's been very like Paul-centric. Like that's where we go to at the cost of not reading the Gospels as much. Yeah. And so I'm probably reacting a little bit against that. But it seems like if you read Jesus, the central issue is kingdom of heaven. You read Paul, the issue is atonement. You know, yeah. maybe you want to go substitutionary atonement. Whatever you think his central issue is, it seems like it's a little bit divergent from Jesus. But you would say all that is washed; they're all the same.
1: Maybe yeah, nothing- I mean, yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to whitewash it all, right? Yeah. I, I do want those differences to remain, and I think different parts of the can different parts of the canon, work in different ways. But I don't want to, in some way, invest the Gospels, or like you said, because in my tradition it was true too. I mean, we invested Paul and certain parts of the letters of Paul with greater authority than we did any other parts of Scripture. So, I mean, in terms of how we practice, nobody said it like that, but that's what we actually did. right? Yeah. And so I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to color it all. I mean, one of my uh, my PhD supervisor used this metaphor of the black gospel choir, and he talked about how if you, if you sit and listen to the black gospel choir practice, you would never think once the performance starts that it's going to sound right, right. There's a kind of wildness to it, a kind of a sense of unpreparedness and who knows what might happen, right? And he says that he thinks reading scripture canonically is like that, that you ought to read, you ought to read Isaiah on Isaiah's terms and not move too quickly to read Isaiah through Paul or read Isaiah through Matthew. Yeah. Just let Isaiah warm up. <laughs> and then the goal in the long run is to hear the whole canon together with all of those parts doing what they do. I think that's that's closer to what I'm after, right? Just, just to say the gospels have a unique place, of course, but they don't have greater authority and they don't we don't we don't come down to an issue and say now you have to decide whether you're going to take Paul's view or the gospels' view and I'm going to decide for the gospels' view because I actually don't think scripture works like that at all anyway. Like I don't think there are doctrines in Scripture that we then draw out and apply. I think Scripture, and this is what connects to that bit about salvation, I think that reading Scripture is more about our struggle to discern the will of God and what happens to us while we're struggling than it is about me getting the right reading of a text and then applying that to my life. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually calling for a kind of, I think, more global change that doesn't require separating out which parts of the canon have the most authority.
0: Wow. Huh. That's interesting. And I'm going to probably be thinking about this for the next few weeks, and so you're going to get some messages from me as I process <laughs> this, because that's, that's fascinating. But we, I, I want to talk to you about prayer originally, so we're going to okay. have to put a pin in this, and we're going to come back to it. because, uh, So when we originally talked on Saturday, uh, our, you know, our, our new best friend Joseph Joseph yes. Phillips. He connected us to so say, "You guys, who's
1: made to... my whole career possible somehow?" But, uh, yeah, from exactly. Forward, yeah, right? this,
0: he's chairman of the board there, and he's clearly an advisor for the podcast <laughs> here. So, I mean, thanks, Joseph. Um, but when he said connect you guys, uh, I thought, "Yeah, that's great." Because I actually was doing a series on prayer, and I had listened to a sermon you did at um, I don't know if I'm going to ever say this name right. Renovatus, is that right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, Renovatus. Yeah. Yeah. Is, or as it says it it says on my phone. I was driving there on on Saturday. And I was trying to remember how Siri says it. Renovatus, I think she says. So, well, I mean, either way, if you want to go with Siri or with if, the, the church's pref- preference. If I
0: was a hillbilly Pentecostal, how would I say that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't say it. You would just say, I'm going to Charlotte, to Jonathan Martin's church or Jonathan Stone's <laughs> <laughs> church. You just name the pastor of the time oh, and that's call what, it his church.
0: Okay, I kind of want to do that then. <laughs> well, we're going to Jonathan's church down in Charlotte. Um, yeah, no, but... So uh, I listened to that sermon a year and a half ago, two years ago. Tim said, hey, yeah. you got to listen. And I thought it was great. And so I'm doing the series on prayer. And so I made a note, okay, we're going to go back and listen to that. And so when he connected us, I was like, perfect. I can just ask him questions about prayer instead of having to listen to him talk about it again. There you go.
1: And so that, it was that's a, a wise question. choice on your part.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. Now, this was a sermon you did two years ago. It was really good. Obviously, I remembered it this far uh, uh, past it. But we're going to talk about prayer. But first things first, don't bring up speaking in tongues because that's going to freak me out, okay? <laughs> <laughs> i had i I had a roommate in college who's uh from the four square tradition oh, and so yeah. he he's that's kind of like you guys
1: uh. it is very similar okay
0: good so so he would speak in tongues like when we would pray and I was like. I wasn't like all U.S. military on him. I was like, just don't ask, don't tell, and we'll be fine. <laughs> I can hear you kind of mumbling, and I was like, I'm just going to pretend like he's right. just got right. speech just impediment. Just assume it's another
1: language. Yeah. Here's, here's a fascinating thing for you. We can put a pin in this conversation too, right? Is very early on in the Pentecostal movement, so the early 1900s, one of the major theological debates was whether or not tongues was human language learned supernaturally or angelic language given supernaturally right okay. so in, in one of the arguments and most of the most of them held the view that it was a human language so it was Chinese or whatever some dialect of Chinese
0: so like you just start saying some random language you've never heard that's what they' yep. okay
1: and the argument was that that was a supernatural gifting for mission so huh. if you spoke in a language that was your call to those people
0: I, I and, could use yeah. a supernatural gift in getting through Hebrew <laughs> class seminary that would have been really awesome. <laughs> You get if that. you lay your hand
1: on the screen right now.
0: <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Do I have to send in $10 to, right, exactly. well? send $10 to my
1: ministry and that uh, <laughs> gift will be with you soon.
0: Okay. Well, so that's not what everyone thinks, but it's part of the uh, original idea. Like that some people had about,
1: yeah, that was one of the original arguments. I mean, the truth is Luke. I mean, now I think, and, and I think in a lot of ways, this is sad. In a lot of ways, this is the inevitable result of those kinds of movements and events I think speaking in tongues is a pretty marginal aspect of most Pentecostals' lives and worship services. I, I, I would imagine that there are very few churches that are that that's a dominant form of expression for them, either in worship or in the lives of the people outside of worship. But it still is an issue theologically. Is for it? Lot,
0: are, are you saying that as as a good thing, or just a you're just naming that's what it is? is no,
1: a- I'm I'm naming it. I I'm, I think in some ways it's good, and I think in a lot of ways it's it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I actually do think in the Christian tradition, forget Pentecostal tradition, there is a witness of prayer as being connected to tongues in some broad sense that we don't want to lose. I think it is an important part of the Christian tradition. But unfortunately, I think a lot of a lot of Pentecostals, the way it happened over the 100-year-plus course of the history, there were so many abuses associated with it. It's, it was kind of inevitable that you were going to get that. Oh, really? the loss that you get, mm-hmm. right? So it's, um, and it's still, it still is an issue. I mean, there are plenty of Pentecostals, if they hear this podcast and hear me saying what I'm saying here, um, they would be upset by it, for sure, because it's still an identity marker for a lot of people, hmm. even people who don't practice it. Really? You know, it's a kind of identity, an identity marker. And it, for me, where I stand on all that, here's some of my unreliable Pentecostalism. I think the practice is, in terms of the church's life, hugely important. I think in terms of the way it's been used as an identity marker, I think it's, I think it's abusive often. Not always, but often been abusive. Hmm. So I'd want to hold those as separate. But you said not to speak about speaking yeah. tongues, and here we are doing it.
0: Well, I'm just going like, to cover my ears. I don't like that to just happen. <laughs> but real talk, just keep it at 100. I, like I, I, I'm not devaluing it like it—like it, it's a legitimate experience and it's part of Scripture and it's part of the history of the church. It's just weird to me. That's all I'm saying. Just sure. like when, when Richard Rohr was telling, my best friend Richard, was telling me about the stigmata and how like Francis had it. I was like, Richard, I believe about everything you say, but that's just weird to me. So whatever. Um, we're, we're cool. Yeah. Okay, now here's the real conversation I want to have with you. Yeah. So obviously my uh, my prayer life is deeply influenced. Uh, my, my almost non-existent prayer life, that is, is deeply influenced by the mystics. And so okay, I'm really bro. comfortable with uh, you know, Roar's lang- working towards the language of like this non-dualistic thinking and and this uh, con- contemplative disposition towards the, the world in the sense of, uh, you know, being aware of God's presence all around you. Like, I really feel comfortable with that. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it was C.S. Lewis's line about, you know, God, uh, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. And like, I yeah. feel I feel comfortable with that. But like you start your sermon off and go, well that's stupid. <laughs> that's just dumb. Right. And right. you're you're pushing back against like a calvinist notion of of God and prayer. Part partly correct, right?
1: Yeah, well there well a certain version of calvinist, right? I mean, but I when actually you have say a pretty deep Calvinist,
0: approach. take that.
1: Yeah, well that's an inside joke. There was someone there that day we'd been having a conversation about um oh, okay. someone in the room. So that was an inside joke. The not all calvinists hold that view. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about a particular person who was having a go at, at me and my friend Jonathan mm-hmm. about that. So that was it was in poor taste, but that's what you get in Pentecostal preaching mm-hmm. is inside jokes from the from the stage.
0: Oh, so if I just say I'm Pentecostal, <coughs> that explains my poor yeah, taste. It explains preaching. it
1: away, right? Okay. Exactly. Note to self: it, I'm in that down. a cover for everything. No, I mean, so I, yeah, I'm pushing back there on actually e- even on Lewis, whom I love. I mean, my son's name, my second child, my oldest son's name is Clive. So mm-hmm. I mean, I love C.S. Lewis but i I really disagree with the notion that prayer is only about changing us. I certainly think it does change us right but i don't i don't think I think we inevitably hear that as just sheer psychology and and God is just the force we press against to change ourselves and and i and I'm, I'm, that's what I'm pushing back against
0: okay now you use a metaphor of Uh, cooking a meal like you're in the kitchen your your young daughter comes in at the time and says you know what are we having for dinner and you know the metaphor you're working with is that we're like your your daughter who comes in god's going to cook a meal but god allows us to influence exactly what that meal looks like so god wants to hear what's in our heart and that somehow shapes him which is like that's a a huge part especially like the jewish tradition of Mm -hmm. arguing and wrestling with god there's a great book i read um uh, Athol Dixon wrote a book called *The Gospel According to Moses*, and he talked about how comfortable, like the Jewish tradition, is with wrestling and arguing with God. Where, like, he's used to just kind of like running away and just yeah, cowering. Right. And I feel right. like that's kind of what you're pushing towards.
1: Yeah. So, yes, it is. I mean, in, in fact, I would argue that what what I'm saying about interpreting Scripture and what I'm saying about prayer, insofar as I'm doing it consistently, it's it's two ways of talking about the Christian life. But it's the same form of the Christian life, and it very much is about contending with God. My friend Jonathan Stone, who pastors Renovatus now, he, he d- talks a lot often about, Walter Brueggemann has this, and I don't even know where Brueggemann talks about it. I've never read it in Brueggemann. I've just heard Jonathan talk about it, about the ways in which he distinguishes between people who never allow themselves to contend with God. And he says if, if you never contend with God, if you never argue with God, never lament, never protest, whether you're reading scripture or in prayer, then eventually you, you come to this submission to God that is dehumanizing and he has a much better Hmm. phrasing than I do, but he says eventually it leads to this kind of dehumanized form of submission that keeps you from being what you were made to be as a creature. And then of course, if you just invert that and you're only living in rebellion against God, then you reach. And I do remember the phrase he uses here, graceless autonomy in which you're free, but you're free from God. And again, you've, dehumanize yourself because yeah. that's not what we're made for and that the a quote unquote healthy and i use that term a little with a little bit of fear because I, i'm not sure we always use it well but a, maybe a, a better term would be a faithful kind of relationship to god would in, would move us toward a kind of freedom in god in which we we are free and feel free to contend to mm-hmm. argue right in the ways you've been talking about but always With this kind, always the assumption that there's something we don't understand yet, and it's rooted in this kind of deeper trust in God that that allows for for doubt and complaint and protest and lament to to give voice. So I I think something like that has to be right in both in prayer and in reading scripture.
0: Yeah, I I never thought of the the dehumanizing aspect to not really argue, And, and it reminded me there. There was a a guy I interned with, like, 15 years ago when I was uh, an undergrad, and he's a brilliant guy. He got, uh, when he finished his master's, he got accepted to Harvard to work on his PhD. Just a brilliant guy. Wasn't, like, a grappler. I was a wrestler in high school, and so, like, Mm. it makes me sound like, I'm just a jock. I'm going to beat him up, and he was, like, the real smart guy, but, like, one time he like we we're 20 and so we tried to wrestle or he i tried to wrestle because for some reason and he just laid on the ground just like a dead fish <laughs> i was like you can't right, do right, it. this
1: isn't how this works this, no <laughs> what,
0: what are you, you do you and he's like i'm not i'm just gonna lay." and i'm like that's kind of like a good metaphor for sometimes like my posture in prayer just like okay it's your will whatever you want and yeah. there's something that's dehumanizing like you're saying when you just have that attitude towards god but like my struggle is like what about the lowest common denominator in prayer? Like I love the idea of wrestling with God and you get God down from like destroying Sodom for 50 people <laughs> down to 10 people in five. Right, right. Like that's right. really awesome. But what mm-hmm. about when you say, God, just make someone who's sick get better. And my mom's been chronically ill uh, since I was a kid. My, my dad's, uh, he's a psychologist. His dissertation is in chronic pain. And so he deals with people who are just never getting better. Yeah. And I think about wrestling with God and I go, well, yeah, but- if God's going to heal someone, I haven't seen this. And it's like, my whole life is like, you have a mom who's sick and she's not getting better. And so when I say, okay, God listens and God hears you when you argue with him. And I compare that to my experience of someone who's not getting better. It's like, well, it it makes God seem pretty terrible. Oh, absolutely. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. I I don't, this is one of the hard things about both about prayer and reading scripture. and, And I suppose everything else in the Christian life, but those are the two that I've been thinking about that it's, it's not enough to just change a little bit of what we say about them. It requires a kind of a much larger scale change in order to make sense of it. So if you say the kinds of things that I want to say about prayer and then you leave everything else, the larger theological issues untouched, it just seems like sometimes God does what we ask him to do and sometimes he doesn't. And I also said in that sermon, at least if I remember rightly, that we never want to talk about prayer as if we're talking God into doing something good God wouldn't do otherwise. That nothing about my prayer, petitionary prayer, is ever going to move God to be better than God would have been if I hadn't prayed. Mm -hmm. The only thing, the only, and I think some of the the root problem here, uh, Ronald Hooter, who teaches at Duke, uh, systematic theologian at Duke, he has this He talks about divine human agency in his work, and he says that there are kind of two models that have emerged in the modern world that are unfaithful, but they tend to be the only models that are available. One is competitive agency, so there's a kind of zero-sum relationship between God's agency and human agency, 50-50, and if I move past 50%, then that strips God of God's freedom, and if God moves past 50%, that strips me of some of my freedom. And then you have exclusive agency, which is a kind of hundred percent zero. It's either all God or all me, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, the, the the unfaithful Calvinist versions are this hundred zero version in which everything is God. It has nothing to do with me except passive receptance, whether that we're talking about prayer or justification or whatever else the case might be. And Hooter, I think, is right that both of those are modernist heresies, that actually what the Christian tradition insists is transcendent agency, that, some, that it's always 100% God and 100% me, which is unthinkable on, this, on that other scale and, on that, and within those other schemes. But his, And he's drawing a lot on Aquinas. And here's where the, the ancients and the medievals just knew more than we do. They just understood more than we understand. And that is that in prayer, I'm not convincing God to do something God isn't going to do or isn't doing already. He's just including my petition in what he's doing somehow. Yeah. Huh. Well, first So that's, of all, that's the kitchen cooking metaphor yeah. for me.
0: Well, first of all, I think you confirmed why you're the smartest Pentecostal with that response. So well done in that. <laughs> that was really the whole point of this podcast yeah, you, after all. <laughs> the whole, well, don't be fooled. I started this just for a big ego boost for myself. So I'm glad that this could help your ego as well. <laughs> that's what it's all that, Narcissism is what we're here for. No, there but you, know. you say um, that there's something about that when, when it's not 100% God, but it's 100% God and 100% us. So, what's the end game? Why? Why do you think God sets it up that way? What is maybe nah. the language of why does God want us to share in His glory in this?
1: Yeah. So, this is and that I love the language you just used. God wants us to share in His glory. So, I think I stole this, that from you. So, of oh. course,
0: you should like it.
1: <laughs> I'm agreeing with myself. Sorry about that. Oh, it is all about ego, apparently. That's embarrassing. Okay. So, now, the point for me is, what kind of creatures are we made to be? <laughs> We're not going to get past this point. No. Now, what kind of creatures are we made to be and i i this this touches on that that Brueggemann quote that we were talking about just a moment ago that we're made we're made to have a certain kind of freedom I don't, not autonomy, not freedom from God, but freedom in god and the and the way God saves us has to move us toward that kind of salvation and I, I think sometimes we we fail to think about about that and you know, we we talk about the way God saves us without thinking about what that might do to us if he were to save us hmm. in this in a way that's untrue to what we are as creatures. Okay. And so I, for me, in prayer and reading scripture, everything God does is meant to lead us toward the kind of creatures we're meant to be. And part of, for me, what I'm convinced of, largely through reading of Hebrews, but not that only, um, Hebrews' use of Psalm 8 in particular, is that we're meant to be mediators of God's goodness to all other created things. That to be human is to have a special place in the created order. Yeah. And that order, that, that special place, is as interpreters. Like, So we see the beauty of God, and then we translate it to all creation. And we see the beauty of creation, and we translate that back to God. And and we, we're, it's a very priestly call, and which we're always going into the presence of God with everything that's created and in need of God, and then coming out from the presence of God with... With that goodness to all created things, Mm -hmm. and so in that sense, our prayers belong to that conversation. To let so God can hear from us what we see, and and it's it's I think when you're talking about praying for healing, I think it can go and and often does go so badly wrong in my tradition. People I, I know so many of my friends, and it's been a part of my own life people who just become over, overwhelmed with the weight of i know someone who's very sick i'm constantly praying god isn't acting and then they don't know what to do is it a failure is my faith failing no. is is god not who i thought he was you know what what's broken here that keeps this system from working and so i think we have to make some pretty drastic large scale changes in order for that not to be the issue right. right so we it's not enough to just change one or two statements about how we pray we really have to rethink and I think, and, and oddly enough, this is where we rediscover voices from our past in ancient and medieval past that are just much wiser than we are on, on these issues. And I, I think the best theologians today are theologians who know that conversation and kind of put us in touch with it.
0: Yeah. huh? So, so when that person comes to you and says, why is this prayer not being answered? Why, you know, why is my husband not getting better? How come my brother's not getting better? Like, What, do you, what is the short answer you give to him?
1: yeah so i i don't I don't know I'm terrible at short answer very <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, really. uh,
0: professor preacher types you don't really have a choice you're gonna have to go along, i get it
1: right. so for me it's there's this is the eschatological part of this conversation, in that for the Christian, there's no final word about anything until the end, mm-hmm. and so we go on praying, we go on inviting God, asking God, invoking God to act but we never give a final reading to what has and hasn't happened. And this is another place where I'm pretty unreliable, unreliably Pentecostal, right? So in, in my tradition, we do a lot of testimony,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which I love, but it can really go wrong, in that people will get up and say, God did this for me, right? And just kind of boast in what God did. And of course, often it turns out that wasn't what they thought it was, right? Hmm. Um, one of my favorite go-to stories for this is um, my my in-laws live in this kind of valley, and several years ago there was an unseasonal amount of rain, and all the other houses in that area flooded except for theirs. Mm-hmm. And it, they weren't saying it, but one of their neighbors were just, was sa- said, well, isn't God amazing, isn't God good, all of our houses flooded and yours didn't. And here I am standing about to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> talking like this, trying not to be rude, but just like don't talk about things this way. Right? Just, no. And, right, yeah. exactly, no. And then like three or four weeks later, the ceiling in their kitchen fell through because their house had flooded. It had just flooded in the attic, oh, not the floor. And so there are a lot of times, I think, in my tradition in which we praise God for something God has done, it turns out God didn't do like we thought God had done, right? Yeah. Just like we can accuse God of not acting in ways in a situation where someone's not healed or whatever else. So what I would encourage is we pray for God to act, and then we live with whatever happens, but we always live with hope, saying we don't know exactly what has happened here. And this isn't the end of the story yet. And so if someone is sick and they don't recover, which again is, you know, our experience almost always, if not always. And even the people who do get well in some way are sick in other ways and then they die. So it's it's not like we have some kind of main line to God to get past the troubles of life, right? What we do is we live believing in a God who's active and who's including us in freedom. But we don't have any final reading of any event until the end. Hmm. And and so we live with that kind of open-endedness.
0: Yeah. So we always live with that, you know, groaning, waiting for redemption. that Paul talks about Romans
1: 8. Absolutely right. So the last thing I'll say about that is one of the things I insist on with my students is that a healed body is no closer to a resurrected body than a sick body is. So we don't celebrate a healed body as if that's somehow holier than a sick body or a disabled body. Yeah. A healed body just is a certain kind of sign it's just a sign that this is a, a foretaste of a certain kind of what's coming in the end. So one way of putting that is to say a healed body is a sign of resurrection in the same way that a sick body can be the sign of the cross we have to bear. But Christ's story is
0: That's good cross
1: and resurrection, right? So yeah. these are ways of attempting to, to, to hold together what we might call the miraculous with everything else, right? Yeah. and not let the miraculous become the point of the Christian life, which is, in, again, in my tradition, that's when it goes wrong, mm-hmm. right? When, when all of a sudden everything about the Christian life is pushing toward miraculous events that somehow prove that we're right about God. Yeah, And I want no part of that.
0: Yeah, and that's I think part of that is the struggle that that I wrestle with is I would rather have low expectations of God and not be disappointed. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, like I do the same thing with my wife. I was like, I'm a terrible <laughs> husband. Just get used to that. And if I act out of character, then you'll be like pleasantly surprised. But, but seriously, like you, like under promise over deliver with God. It's like, you, if you're not expecting God to do anything, well then when something nice happens from God, it's a surprise. But it seems like that's not what God is wanting. Like God wants this relationship and this back and forth. And like this, um, I think it was Aquinas who talked about uh, this, uh, this open posture towards the world where you like experience it like Jesus did. And part of that is like embracing that hurt and pain and disappointment. Uh, Disappointment with God is, is part of the the Christian experience.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I I think two levels here. I mean, I think there are some disappointments with God, that are faithful. I think there are other disappointments with God that are only the result of our bad constructs. So, you know, like having taught an ORU in Tulsa, I mean, there were lots of people there who had a construct about healing that was really something this simple. It was God wants to heal and he will heal every sickness if you have enough faith. Yeah. And if you don't see the healing... It's not because God lacks the power or lacks the will. It's because you somehow lack the power or the will. Your faith is too weak Gosh, or your will is game. weak. It's a terrible
0: game. It's terrible mentality. It's demonic. Yeah. It's
1: demonic. I mean, it's, it's dehumanizing in the worst possible way. And part of what I think happens with a lot of those people is they experience what they think is disappointment with God. But really, it's the failure of that construct. Yeah. Right. So I would want to differentiate. I think there are times, though, even when your construct is more faithful than that, There are ways in which God's wisdom is just not our wisdom, and we don't understand what God is doing, and there's genuine disappointment, even for the saints, right, even for people whose constructs are much more faithful. Mm -hmm. But I do think we can do a lot about what we experience as disappointments by allowing those constructs to be taken apart, realizing, okay, we've been talking about this unfaithfully. That's why we're setting ourselves up for this disappointment. And so I I think part of it is, and again, I apologize, I mean, i talking about my own tradition so much, you'll just have to connect it to yours in some way. But I think in my tradition, we often talk more about faith than we do about hope. Hmm. We're much more interested in what, what we can see God doing now than we are about expectation of what will happen in the end. And I, I come back over and over again to Romans 8, and you've already mentioned it, where Paul says, hope that is seen is not hope. Mm-hmm. And there's something that is right at the heart, I mean, written right into the, the DNA of the Christian life as we know it, that is about what we don't see, and about what we don't understand. And in, if we're teaching people in a way that courage is faith but not hope, mm-hmm. then it's not Christian. And I, and I think that's part of what we have to do is make sure that we are we're nurturing in people just a, a hope that's as strong as their faith is. Otherwise, it's distortion, and mm-hmm. that's that's what I see so often with with the people that you know that I love that I worship with. I mean, is that kind of Emphasis on faith as over against hope.
0: Wow, that's good. That's a good insight. Now, speaking of disappointment with God, um, let me tell you one disappointment I have with you.
1: (laughs) This will be a long list.
0: Uh, So you said in the sermon that you cry all the time. I and, do. And uh, we've been talking for 47 minutes now, and you haven't cried one time. So I'm kind of like, what's wrong with me? I Why? cried
1: laughing at myself a moment ago, <laughs> with that, agreeing with you when you were quoting me, right? That-
0: <laughs> okay, that counts. That counts. Hey, this is a lot of fun. We'll see you down at the uh, Praxis Conference in yeah, Houston. I'm so in, glad you're coming. That's in a so couple cool. weeks. Yeah, I'm excited. Now, are you doing? are you going to be teaching there at all?
1: Yeah, I'm doing one of the sessions. So, they're, you know, they're TED Talk format. So, I think it's 18 minutes. I'm actually talking about the limits of Protestant spirituality. That's the topic. Okay. Well, using.
0: first of all, can a can a uh, charismatic Pentecostal preacher go 18 minutes? Is that even
1: <laughs> is that even possible? Um. I'm pretty sure they're going to have someone to carry me away, right? Okay. So I'm going to be right in the throes of it and okay. someone will walk up and push me off the
0: stage. Well, I would love to see Aaron Nequist just, like, kick you off the stage if that Aaron's happens. such a
1: violent man. I know. He, I just seem like, oh, my gosh.
0: Do don't hit me again, Aaron. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I didn't buy all your CDs. My bad. Listen, anyway.
1: Aaron, I don't know Aaron that well, but Aaron is one of the nicest people I think that's ever graced the planet. So they probably won't send him to do it. No, probably but, not. But there's someone at Praxis. There are plenty of people. Ed Gunger, for instance. I mean, he's uh, He's more than willing to use violence, so yeah, he he'll, he'll probably violent. be the one who does it.
0: I don't know him, but I've talked to Aaron one time, and he seemed very pleasant, yeah, just like you. A- so thank you for your time. <laughs> you clearly hey. have earned the title Smartest Pentecostal for a reason. Who's
1: been on this podcast on this date? <laughs> like, <laughs> let's limit it to that, and I'll agree with you. Oh, <laughs> uh, that sounds good. Thanks, hey, man. It's been, it's been fun. I'll talk to you again, okay? See you yeah. in a couple weeks.
0: Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.